Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we cover a case that goes in a direction you will never see coming. Sometimes when I start looking into a case, it all kind of makes sense as I go along and I can almost predict where it's going to go, but this is not one of those cases. So fasten your seatbelts. Small talk makes my ears bleed, so let's dive in. Heather Saccone was one of those girls with a bubbly personality and a smile that could light up a room. Her sister describes her as being the best of everyone, saying that she didn't have a single mean bone in her body. Her family says that her fatal flaw was always seeing people at their highest potential and not for who they really were. She had several different groups of friends, but mixed none of them. She had her volleyball friends, her sense elementary school friends, her work friends, and her fixer-upper friends, who tended to have a bit of a shady past, but she wanted everyone to know that they were more than what they seemed. Heather even had pen pals that were in prison at one point because, again, she saw the best in everyone and she wanted them to see it in themselves as well. She was athletic and ambitious, a natural basketball player who also made time for track and volleyball. In her high school years back at Chancellor, she was even made co-captain of the varsity basketball team in her sophomore year. Sophomores rarely make varsity, let alone become co-captain. But that's what Heather did. She gave 100% or she didn't do it at all. And this isn't one of those times where the family is buttering up reality and only giving you the best memories of someone. Even the athletic director from her high school describes her as pleasant and respectful, according to Fredericksburg.com. She would literally volunteer to wash and fold the girls' basketball uniforms after each game. She was the proud aunt to one niece and three nephews and spent any time she could doting on them. Photos of them littered her Facebook page. Her family referred to her as Boo Boo, and Heather said that there was no better feeling than when her niece and nephews would come running up to her with their arms wide open calling her name. Heather had graduated high school with a lot of respect. She had attended a local community college for a short period and worked at the local Red Robin in Fredericksburg, but she had bigger plans. After Christmas in 2015, she planned on fulfilling her dreams of joining the Navy, but that would never happen. On December 6, 2015, everything changed. Heather hadn't been feeling well the last couple of days and actually called in sick to work that night, something that she rarely did. She was one of those people that never got sick, but when she did, she got sick sick. Around 9.30 p.m., Heather told her mom that her friend's car had broken down and that she was going to head out and give her a ride. Wearing what she had been wearing the entire day without an ounce of makeup on, she headed out the door. This wasn't like Heather at all. She was a girly girl. She enjoyed all the frills of hair and makeup and looking her best. So her parents were pretty surprised that she left the house looking like she did. But again, she felt like crap. She said goodbye to her mom and walked out the front door, neither of them ever considering that it would be the last time they would ever speak. At 11 p.m. that night, just an hour and a half later, a man called 911 to report a vehicle sitting at the end of his long driveway at 10300 Piney Branch Road. According to Fredericksburg.com, he didn't recognize it and said that the driver was unresponsive at the wheel. He checked for a pulse and felt nothing. When the sheriff's department arrived on scene, they found Heather alone in her 2010 Kia, shot and killed by a single gunshot wound to the back right side of her head. She was 30 minutes from her home in Spotsylvania and had absolutely no connection to the address she had been found at. I'll include a map of this address to Heather's highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley, and you'll notice that this house is in the actual middle of nowhere. 
In this particularly rural area, it's not unusual to hear gunshots from hunters, but that night, no one remembers hearing anything. At 3 a.m. on December 7th, Heather's parents got a knock at the door, and it was the police. I can only imagine that their hearts stopped the second they saw who it was, and that everything after that seemed like it was going in slow motion. Their daughter had been shot in the back of the head, execution style, and was found in the driveway of a home that they knew nothing about. What universe is this? This only happens on TV. It doesn't happen to normal families like theirs. It doesn't make any sense. This cannot be right. They must have the wrong house. But they didn't. Heather's older sister, Courtney, knew from the second she heard the news that her sister had been murdered. She told anyone that would listen that Heather had been getting stalked and harassed since October by a girl named Danielle who was dating the same guy Heather was. Danielle had been going above and beyond to make Heather's life miserable, and Heather even considered filing harassment charges and seeking a protective order, but she never did. Danielle had made fake Instagram accounts with Heather's photos saying things like, I suck dick for free, as well as similar Craigslist ads. On one particular day, she called Heather 137 times. One day in October of 2015, Danielle even showed up at Heather's house to try and confront her. She was with a friend and there was a child in her car. Heather's dad called his daughter Courtney and Courtney showed up to try and defuse the situation. It's then that Courtney says Danielle tried to run her over with the car that, remember, had a child in it. She left threatening voicemails on Heather's phone and even made videos saying that Heather deserved to be popped. Two months later, she was. It didn't take long for the medical examiner to come to a conclusion in the cause and manner of Heather Saccone's death. Less than 24 hours after her body was found, her case was deemed a homicide by gunshot. The sheriff's department says that they're confident that her murder was not random. Heather had been targeted, and thus the investigation begins. A search warrant is filed with the Stafford County Circuit Court to comb through Heather's car, and the warrant is granted. I can only imagine that they filed this warrant to dot their I's and cross their T's when it comes time to prosecute whoever's responsible, because finding a 21-year-old girl shot in the back of the head in the front seat of her car is definitely probable cause enough to search through it. Authorities are tight-lipped about what they find in her car, but do note that they found a shell casing of a small caliber pistol in the back passenger floorboard, meaning that she had been shot inside of the vehicle and from the back seat. Considering the entry wound being on the back right side of her head, we can conclude that whoever shot Heather would likely have been sitting in the back passenger seat, which also makes me think there was probably more than one person in the car when it happened. Grown-ass people don't sit in the back seat unless the front seat is taken. The caliber of the shell casing found could also explain why no one seemed to have heard anything. A 22 caliber pistol is a pretty small gun as far as guns go, and being inside of a vehicle is going to muffle any sound that does come from it. I later learned that her cell phone was found in the car dropped between her legs. Along with that was Heather's purse, wallet, two GPS devices, and police took swabs of DNA from her vehicle, which were sent out to the lab for testing. The results are expected to take weeks, though. Another thing that isn't mentioned in any of the mainstream media articles I've seen is that the shell casing isn't the only bullet they found. They found a 22 caliber live round on the ground behind Heather's car, which matched the spent casing found inside, but we'll get more into that later. 
Spotsylvania Sheriff's Department releases a flyer with photos of Heather's silver Kia, and what makes this seem almost even more tragic than it already is, is you can now see that someone had written, I heart you, on the back windshield sometime before she was killed. To this day, her family still has no idea who put it there, but her sister says that it had been there for a couple of weeks. On the flyer, police ask that anyone who saw Heather's vehicle between 10 and 11 p.m. on December 6th to please contact police. I'll post a copy of the flyer to Heather's highlight at the top of my Instagram, as always, at the Heather Ashley. On December 10th, police publicly mention Heather's cell phone for the first time. They tell WJLA that they're now confident that they will close this case, but like we see in many other cases, they keep what they found on her phone close to the vest. I've always understood this tactic and struggled with it, but police do this because there needs to be some information that only the killer would know. Maybe they slip up and that's how they nail them. Maybe they confess, but they don't know jack shit about the murder, and then we know it's crap. But if all the details of the case are out there for the world to see, a defense attorney is going to have a field day when it comes time for court, saying that any confession that was given is a false confession because anyone could have known that information. One thing we do learn, though, is that they plan to do a full-on cell tower dump for the areas she would have been in that night, meaning that they'll be able to see anyone else who is also pinging off of the same towers. I mentioned tower dumps in the Thomas Brown case, and I feel so strongly about their usefulness. I'm legitimately tickled that they're putting in the effort to do this. It's tedious, but it's that tedious work that gets you that irrefutable circumstantial evidence. And while a lot of people brush off circumstantial evidence, it can sometimes be some of the most compelling evidence there is in a case. Rumors start circling around the community that police are searching a home in a neighborhood called the Timbers. The houses are nice middle-class homes, a lot of ranchers, nothing fancy, but nothing crappy either. And the rumors are correct. I asked Heather's sister and police did in fact search a home on Cleveland Court in the Timbers subdivision belonging to a guy named Joshua. I can only imagine that Joshua only came about as a result of what they found in Heather's cell phone. Another home was searched as well, a home just a few houses down from Heather's on Sawyer Lane in Battlefield Green. It's at this point in the case where the county prosecutor requests that all records regarding Heather's case be sealed, and it's granted, which is shocking. She's not a minor, so this has to be some kind of safety protocol, which then has me guessing, what are we about to find out? Fredericksburg.com provides some of the verbiage used by the prosecutor, and I quote, the names of people who have provided information in the intentionally perpetrated execution-style homicide are in the affidavits, and those people would be subject to danger if their names are made public. Holy shit. This is the kind of thing you see in gang or mafia-related murders, not little blonde basketball prodigies with intent on joining the military. On December 23rd, word gets out about new search warrants. At least two people were required to give their DNA for testing. The only crime scene we know about is the car, and we know they took some swabs of something. So we can probably assume that they're doing this for comparison purposes to confirm or rule out any suspects they have in mind. They also get warrants to search a house in King George, which is 45 minutes away from Spotsylvania. The home is that of a guy named DeAndre. There are also warrants to search a few more homes in Spotsylvania and warrants for a hell of a lot of cell phones. I literally dream of laying in a room full of this much evidence and just making a floor angel while I meticulously pick through everything in an effort to nab a guilty son of a bitch. There are two types of people in this world, people who dream about winery tours in Napa Valley and people who dream of making evidence angels on a cold, hard floor in a police station. But anyways, months pass. Five of them. Five months with no updates, no word on any forensic results, nothing, and people around town start to worry if Heather has been pushed aside and forgotten about. 
but she hasn't. In late April of 2016, police offer a $2,500 reward for information leading to the arrest of anyone responsible for Heather's murder. Seven months later, on the one-year anniversary of Heather's murder, we still have no more information than we did a year ago, and locals are pissed. But then it happens. Four months go by, and on March 21st, 2017, two men are indicted for the 2015 murder of 21-year-old Heather Saccone. WTVR lists their charges as follows. Joshua Williams, first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. Jonathan Vejerano, I might have pronounced that wrong. First-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, use of a firearm in the commission of a felony, and possession of a firearm. The two were already incarcerated at the time of their indictments. Authorities don't release any information on what ties the two men had to Heather, so I started to do some digging of my own. What I dug up about Joshua is that him and the police were no strangers. He had charges of possession with the intent to distribute twice drug sales on or near school grounds or a library, attempting to escape jail by force, possession of schedule one or two drugs, manufacturing a controlled substance twice, possession of weed three times, malicious wounding, buying or receiving stolen goods under $200, distribution of weed, violent felon in possession of a weapon, and receiving a stolen firearm and aiding and concealing it. The last two charges happened after Heather was murdered, but before he was arrested for it. So we can go ahead and assume that they're related to Heather's murder. Jonathan's record is a little more underwhelming. Not that that's a compliment. I found charges for possession of stolen goods under $200 twice, possession of marijuana, accessory to a robbery, and assault. But most shocking of all, Joshua Williams is none other. Seriously, brace yourself for this. None other than the baby daddy of Danielle, the girl who had been incessantly stalking Heather prior to her murder. Joshua lived with Danielle, but had been dating Heather. He told Heather that him and Danielle were done, but clearly he was playing both sides. In fact, Heather had gotten a DUI back in early November of 2015 while out with Josh in his vehicle just a month before she was killed. Heather was in the driver's seat listening to music, waiting on an Uber when police came up behind her. It's been confirmed that Heather had in fact ordered an Uber, but in Virginia, if you so much as have the keys in the ignition, even if you're in park, you can be charged with a DUI. Guess who followed Heather to the jail and bailed her out? Joshua. Meanwhile, he was still carrying on a live-in relationship with his girlfriend and baby mama who didn't hide her hatred for Heather at all. You can only imagine that this added all kinds of fuel to an already unstable fire. The two trials of Joshua and Jonathan begin and my jaw hits the floor. This case goes in a direction I could have never imagined. It turns out that Jonathan was caught because he had been going around the jail telling anyone who would listen that he was having nightmares of the blonde girl he shot in the back of the head. One inmate even kept a detailed diary of the dates and times Jonathan talked about the murder. The details, who was around when he said it, where they were in the jail, everything. 
It's also released that both Joshua and Jonathan are involved in a street gang and sell marijuana together. And police believe that both of these things played a part in Heather's murder. And they're right. That phone call from a friend whose car had allegedly broken down never happened. Heather's friend DeAndre knew that she was the kind of person who would do damn near anything to make anyone happy and to help them out, even if it wasn't a great situation. So DeAndre texted Heather and asked if she could get him a HP of weed. That if she could get someone to front her the weed, he would give her the money and she could take it back to the dealer, essentially asking her to be a runner. Now, Heather doesn't smoke or do any drugs, so she Googles what an HP of weed is and figures out that it's a half pound of weed. She knows that some of her friends sell it, so she tells him that she'll see what she can do. Unbeknownst to Heather, her friend DeAndre had planned to rob her of the weed when he met up with her. Heather asked one of her guy friends and one of her girlfriends if they'd be willing to sell her a half a pound of weed for a friend. They both said no because they knew Heather didn't smoke or sell it, so it felt fishy. Finally, on December 4th, Heather reached out to Joshua for the weed, and when Danielle got wind of it, she convinced Joshua that Heather was an informant with the police looking to have him busted in return for having her DUI charge dropped, saying that Heather couldn't join the Navy if she was convicted. But Heather was not an informant. Heather hadn't even so much as had her court date yet, so she certainly hadn't had her charge dropped. Remember that unspent bullet they found behind Heather's car? It came back with DNA on it that belonged to a guy named Jeffrey. And naturally, Jeffrey is like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Jeffrey says that he bought the gun from a guy who had stolen it from his mom. They track down this guy, and his mom confirms that she's missing that gun. They find a spent casing from where she used to do target practice, and it's a match. Jeffrey then tells police that he had sold the gun to none other than Joshua Williams on December 5th, 2013, the day before Heather was murdered. On the morning of December 6th, Joshua's brother Clinton is seen on surveillance buying a burner phone from a local Walmart. This burner phone was only used to communicate with Heather about the alleged marijuana deal. While Heather was sick in bed on the night of the 6th, she was talking on her phone with her friend Tyel. Tyel is a girl, by the way. While they're chatting, Heather tells her to hang on. She's getting a call from an unknown number. When she gets back on the phone with Tyel, she tells her that it was Joshua who had called her. The unknown number, it belonged to the exact burner that Joshua's brother had purchased that morning. To say that they had planned Heather's murder for days would be an understatement. Joshua had told Heather they would meet up and swap the weeds sometime that day, saying he could only get her a quarter pound like any of that matters. She kept asking when and he kept telling her to hold on, maybe because he was getting cold feet, maybe because Jonathan was busy. We'll probably never know. But eventually, Joshua gave the signal and that's when Heather's life began to end. The details are a little sketchy, but what they believe happened is that Heather went to Joshua's house and picked up him and Jonathan and they told her where to drive. They drove straight down Gordon Road and then they told her to turn onto Piney Branch Road knowing that it was rural and the driveways on the road were long. They had her pull into a driveway and told her to wait. A car pulled up behind them and Joshua got out, taking a duffel bag with him that he had found in Heather's back seat. He went to the car behind them, then walked over to Heather's driver's side door to hand her the drugs. But there were no drugs. That duffel bag was empty and had been left in Heather's backseat by a friend of hers. It's then, when she's distracted, that Jonathan pulls out the 22 caliber pistol that Joshua had purchased the day before and shot Heather in the head. She never saw it coming. The two ran into the getaway car behind them and sped off. To this day, we still don't know who was driving that car. 
And no, it wasn't Danielle. It's confirmed that she was nowhere near the crime scene when Heather's murder took place. The owner of the house on Piney Branch Road was actually looking down his driveway when the second vehicle pulled up. He said it sat there for about 30 seconds before speeding away. Press pause and set a timer for 30 seconds. It's the perfect amount of time to pretend to grab drugs from a car, walk it to her car door while someone in the backseat shoots her. Call records show that for the first time in the history of owning his cell phone, Joshua turned it off 20 minutes before Heather was murdered. The drive to where she was killed takes 13 minutes. He likely turned it off as soon as he knew Heather was on her way because he didn't want any records to show that they were near one another that night because he knew what was going to happen. He turned his phone back on 30 minutes after Heather was murdered. When he did, it was pinging off of a cell tower near Central Park in Fredericksburg, Virginia, a 17-minute drive from where Heather was killed. He used a burner phone to talk to her on the day she was murdered because he knew he'd need to contact her but didn't want their phones pinging off of the same towers. At one point during the trial, Joshua throws a temper tantrum in the courtroom because he hears about some evidence that he says he didn't know about. He demands a mistrial and that shit doesn't happen. So like the grumpy toddler he is, he swipes everything off of the table in front of him and onto the floor and he talks shit about the decision. They can go ahead and cancel any character witnesses. Go home. You are not needed here. We know why Joshua wanted Heather dead. He had baby mama drama and she had convinced him that Heather was an informant out to ruin his and their kids' lives. But where did Jonathan fit into all this? It's said that killing Heather was a way for him to have his $5,000 drug debt wiped clean and to serve as his initiation into their gang. Jonathan wasn't a bright guy, he never really fit in, and in this case, a gang accepted him for who he was and he was willing to do what he needed to do to belong. In a few recorded phone calls from jail, Jonathan is heard trying to get Danielle and his brother Clinton to be his alibi for when Heather was killed. That obviously doesn't work because that's not how any of this works. And I'm pretty sure that the first class of How to Be a Criminal 101 is all phone calls from jails are recorded. Joshua's brother Clinton Williams was later charged with accessory after the fact and conspiracy to commit perjury for purchasing the burner phone and cooking up a fake alibi. Danielle was also charged with accessory after the fact and conspiracy to commit perjury. Clinton was released on a $50,000 bond. Danielle was given no bond. Let's all take a moment to high-five that judge. On December 11th, it's Judgment Day. It takes no time for a jury to find Joshua guilty on all charges, and he was given 38 years. Are you kidding me? 38 years? That's it? But he wasn't the trigger man, even though it was him who purchased the gun and his brother who purchased the burner phone used to set this up. 15 years was later added onto the sentence for other incidents, which feels a little more reasonable. Jonathan is found guilty on all charges and is sentenced to life in prison plus eight years. He will leave that prison when he dies and only then. I looked up Clinton's charges and it looks like they were all dropped. I literally cannot. He bought that burner phone. Try and convince me that he didn't know what was going to happen and that he couldn't have stopped it. Danielle was later convicted on the perjury charges and fined $5,000. She spent nine months in jail waiting on her court date and was released on time served. But if you ask me, they got this wrong. I don't believe that any of this would have happened if it wasn't for Danielle. Heather was a victim of blind optimism. She set out to get robbed by one friend that night only to be murdered by another. 
If we take anything away from Heather's story, it's to set boundaries. Don't lose yourself to please others. Don't let anyone mistake your kindness for weakness and always let someone, anyone know where you really are and who you're really with. Turn on Find My iPhone, download Life360, send friends your location, be extra and protect the crap out of yourself. You're worth it. Join me tonight for Crime Talk Live at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me on my Instagram at theheatherashley and we discuss the case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, all of your episodes will be ad-free. And for $5 a month, you'll get an exclusive extra episode each month. So instead of four, you'll get five. If you love this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get notifications every time a new episode is posted. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or even a review. We love reading them. Next week, I'll be bringing you a brand new case, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.